well, that was kind of cool. Um, Amen. I, I actually put some notes down there, for heaven's sake. Uh, the second best thing about Kyle, well, okay, the first best thing about Kyle going to Haiti is that it means I get to come and preach to you in this particular setting. Uh, because I, I've got to confess, this is, uh, this is unlike anything I have ever done quite like this. Um, y'all too, right? And so that's pretty cool. The second thing that is awesome about Kyle being in Haiti is that it means that during, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. It means that during Duke games, it means that, yeah, I am wearing my Duke shirt. Would any of you like to just see that for the entire sermon? Yeah. To those of you who are Carolina fans, I have to confess something that I that I'm fearful of this being ever recorded, but there was a part of me that actually kind of was pulling for those guys. And that's like never happened because I actually like the, the, the kids that are on that team. I think they're great. But the best thing, the second best thing about Kyle being in Haiti is that it means that we're not texting during Duke games. And because we discovered a long time ago that if we start texting during Duke games, they have a tendency to lose. I think it's something about when Kyle and I start talking with a couple of our other friends that it like somehow the universe conspires against Duke just because of us. Uh, not that we think that we can control the universe. Don't get me wrong. Um, a couple of interesting things to me about this whole theme of, of rage. And, and part of what's so fun is that um, your pastor, Kyle, uh, he almost never seems to be angry. Uh, he keeps it so well hidden, and, and he deals with it very effectively. That's why I'm really grateful for Nancy, because she keeps him from losing his mind. Um, yes, yes. Um, Plus, Nancy does a great job of or every time I have preached with you guys, whether it was at the used to be building or whether it's in here this morning, keeping me straight and getting me oriented and everything. Kevin getting, you know, making sure that I got where I needed to be. And, and you guys over here making sure that everything is where it needs to be. Y'all have done something really amazing here. Uh, this is uh, this is um, to put it in biblical terms. This is making your uh, years in the wilderness work. And there's something about the passion uh, when the nomads get to come home, get to get to the promised land. There's something exciting about that. Or when the exiles get to return home, there's something really exciting about that moment. So it's really cool. And I can't, I'm sorry, I'm not smart enough to come up with other broader vocabulary words than that. It's just cool. <laughs> um, so the theme today is rage. And I, when, when Kyle called and asked me if I would be willing to, to preach today, I said, sure, what do you want me to talk about? He's like, rage. I was like, why would you ask me? <laughs> like, he's like, well, you know, doubt and questions. I'm like, again, why did you ask me? Um, he knows me all too well. The thing about anger is that it always reveals so much about us. And many of us, if you're like me, you were taught not to get angry. Uh, you were taught that if you get angry, you've got to do everything you can to sort of stuff it down, make sure that it doesn't come out. Don't ever show the anger. And you were certainly taught, if you, were, if you grew up like I did, you were certainly taught never to express any kind of anger towards God. But that, to me, is a profoundly unbiblical 
perspective. Uh, the thing about the Bible is that the Bible is full of people who struggle with their anger with God. And their anger, sometimes it boils up over things that are perfectly legitimate. Um, almost always, for example, uh, in, or at least in many cases, it's related to enemies. You know, several, a couple, 3,000 years ago, you're dealing with a world in which you had military powers all over the place, constant wars and violence. We still have that. I mean, for example, uh, one of the times recently when my anger kindled so strongly and so hot against God was when I watched a video, a documentary on HBO about the Syrian war. And I watched the treatment of those kids. And I watched the way those kids uh, and all of those people um, faced chemical warfare and what it did to them. And that suffering. And in my heart, I felt it rise and I wanted to yell at politicians. And I might have sent a few emails. Um, (laughs) And I wanted to be angry at people. And I was But even more than that, it was that burning question of, God, why did you even let this happen? You look, look, dude, you're supposedly all powerful. What kind of an all powerful God lets this stuff happen? And then, of course, my upbringing kicked in and I started getting afraid, started getting afraid that I was getting angry at God. And I'd been taught never to be angry at God because some bad things would happen and that God would not tolerate anger with me. Took me a long time and a lot of therapy to realize that God doesn't necessarily be God the way my parents were my parents. Does that make sense? So I had to do some thinking about that. And I thought, you know what? When there's injustice, God's people should be angry. And here's the other thing. God's probably big enough and strong enough and all-powerful enough to handle it. If you think that God is threatened by your anger, then your God's pretty weak. Let's pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight and your presence. You are our rock and our redeemer. In this time, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. And this day, may we do something that gives you joy. May the words that are spoken and the words that are heard not be the words of your servant, but the words of your Holy Spirit. This we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so in the Psalms, there is a theme that goes all through the Psalms, and it is in many cases, well, no, in all cases, I think, it is brutal honesty. Sometimes that brutal honesty comes out with these amazing songs of praise. Sometimes it comes out like Psalm 23 that we're all familiar with in a way that's very comforting and pastoral and gentle and nice. And, and, and in some ways, it's aspirational. In Psalm 23, we, we aspire to have a place where God makes us to lie down by still waters where we can just be comforted. We long for that. And yet there are other places in the Psalms where they are brutal. There are other Psalms that are absolutely so hot with fire because the psalmist is being honest about what they're dealing with. They rage. Psalm 77 is a complaint. And it's a complaint that I suspect if we could hear the psalmist 
him or herself singing or speaking this, it would have a little bit of heat to it. Here's what it says. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and yet my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. Don't you love it? God keeps me. I'm trying to pray to you, and you're keeping me wide awake. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. Anybody ever spent some time thinking about how great things used to be, and you start getting angry that you lost them? I'm getting ready to turn 50. I've been getting angry over some of the days that I've lost. (laughs) I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated and my spirit asked, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? And then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God. You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. And one of the reasons why I like Psalm 77 so much for what we're talking about, for talking about rage, is because it does what I think is probably a pretty healthy template. Lays out a complaint, and it's not completely rational. Like, God, why, why do you keep poking me at, at night when I'm trying to get some sleep? I'm trying to rest. And I know that if I could just rest, I could be better. Why do you keep making it worse? Why do you keep agitating me with things? But then the psalmist comes around to this place where the psalmist has to remember who God has also been, right? So the complaint that the former days are gone was a part of that litany of things that he was frustrated by. But then he comes back later on and he says, I've got to remember who God has been. I've got to remember the times when God actually did stuff that was positive for me. Does anybody, I just want to ask this really quickly. Is anybody uncomfortable talking about rage? I mean, you don't have to raise your hand. But if you were raised uh, in a very genteel southern way, you might have been taught uh, never to let your anger show. If you were raised in a very calming and antiseptic place, uh, you might have been taught never to let your anger show. One of the frustrating things to me about watching General Conference, and, and I did watch a good bit of it a few weeks ago, one of the things that was so frustrating to me was how antiseptic and sterile and sanitized the conversation was. I mean, that's Robert's Rules of Order, right? Which nobody will ever confuse as a legitimate way of discerning God's will, I hope. (laughs) But I sat there kind of watching and thinking, how crazy is this that we're we're putting on this veneer of this, this, this sort of this gilded conversation, 
right? Where you've just got a surface level that looks very calm and placid and everything put well together. But you know that what's going on underneath is a lot of hurt, a lot of anger, a lot of frustration, a lot of disappointment, and even, you know, I like to joke and say, and even blowing up the denomination. I mean, you know, why not be calm about that? Um, if, you were, if you were like me and you were taught that to mistrust your anger, it can be very challenging to get comfortable with the word rage. In the Bible, in the New Testament, the word is thumos, which actually sounds a lot like thermos. And you would be right to make that uh, connection because the word thumos, it, talk, it means get heated. Part of what makes me get heated is when I realize that who God made me to be and how God created me, sometimes that puts me in the line of fire with people. In fact, sometimes that puts me in the line of fire where things go wrong and I get caught up in it. Sometimes it puts me in a place where I take a step out and I try to do something on God's behalf and it doesn't work out. Somebody didn't approve of it or agree with it and so they jumped me. Or I thought I was going to, you know, and you know the saying, no good deed goes unpunished. That's what the psalmist is complaining about. I tried to do what you wanted. Why do you reject me? Did you just suddenly get angry, God? Did you, why would God ever just suddenly turn his back on me? That's the key question in Psalm 77. But it's a good question because it's honest. And all through the Psalms, what those writers are doing is reminding us of how to be honest. And sometimes it means you say things that sound, they sound absolutely inhumane. Like there's this one Psalm where the psalmist wants his enemy's children to be bashed against the rocks. That's anger. That's rage, right? But then... There are these other passages that are so pastoral and gentle and rolling hills and streams like Psalm 23. And then Psalm 77, which says, don't forget who God has been. And I think in order to do a kind of biblical and spiritual understanding of what's happening, we have to ask the question, what is God doing here? Like When we get really super angry, what is God doing? I've been um, thinking about anger for maybe all of my life. Um, some of you, many of you know, uh, and I may have used it as a sermon illustration before. So if I have, just forgive me because I've only got six or seven and I have to reuse them. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so when I, was, when I was a teenager, my mom died of cancer. And part of that whole experience for me was coming to terms, uh, was, was learning how to identify what I really feel which is difficult to do for a kid who's been taught to mistrust powerful emotions. And, uh, and Kyle might even tell you that I've become a little too comfortable with trusting my powerful emotions. Um, but it's like I, I, I'd learned to be mistrusting of my powerful emotions. And so when my mom was sick, um, that became a really odd time, a really odd proving ground for what faith might be. And coming to understand that questioning God is not the same as losing faith. Coming to the place where I understood that having doubts about who God is is not the same as losing faith. In fact, being willing to question God might actually show a deeper relationship to God. Now, it took a really good pastor to teach me that. It took a really, some really good saints 
who mentored me and took me in after my mom died to remind me that it was okay to have that hurt burning within me. And the way sometimes, you know this, that a lot of times what we express is anger, but what we're really feeling is hurt. Sometimes those traumas from our lives, they manifest and they bubble out as anger and it boils out as rage and it's really just hurt. It's the hurt of losing my mom and then trying to figure out why God would not have saved her because there was no human being more perfect than her. And yet, what was God thinking? You know, and then, of course, then people, church people would say all those ridiculous things. You know, God must have needed another angel. Yeah, okay, that's not in the Bible. <laughs> um, I needed somebody to teach me that it was okay to let my pain manifest as rage because that was part of how I would deal with it. So I came to understand a guy named Job. And uh, Job is a, is a guy who had some things to happen to him. Y'all know the story of Job? Okay, Job is, this, Job is actually the oldest book in the Bible. Um, it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't really have a time or place. It's just, but of all the writings, most scholars think it is the oldest writing in the Bible. And so Job had a great life, had family, had kids, great wife, great goats. Um, and, and he loved all of them. His, his cattle, they mooed the most melodic moos you've ever heard. And then, then God strikes up a deal with the adversary who we call Satan. And, and, of course, the way the book of Job is written is kind of peculiar that way, right? Um, Ha-Satan, that's Hebrew for the adversary or Satan. And uh, strikes up this deal, and, and Satan says, you know what? I bet that I, can get, that I can get Job to turn his back on you, God. And God's like, nope, my, my guy Job will never turn his back on me. And so then what starts happening is... His Job's kids start dying off, his crops start dying off, his goats start dying, his wife dies. He gets afflicted with um, all kinds of sores and bodily ailments. And then eventually, and, and then on top of it, he's got these friends who keep accusing him of doing something wrong. That, that must clearly be why God was busting on him so badly. Because clearly God made this stuff happen. I mean, because his friends... Great friends. If you've got those friends, go ahead and make friends to break up with them. <laughs> because, because, because here's the thing, those kind, of, those kind of friends, they will run your faith in the ground far more and far worse than fate will. Anyway, so they start accusing him. They accuse the, the, the person that's having all this bad stuff. They can't just be with him because they're so uncomfortable with it. Anyway, and so Job finally, uh, Job finally uh, wails on his friends, and this is what he says. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. He has blocked my way so that I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side till I am gone. 
He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. His troops advance in force, and they build a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has alienated my family from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. Here's Job. He is very aware that what is happening to him is not right. He's done everything he could to be a good guy. Done everything he could to be holy to God. And yet it all goes south in a hurry. And when it does, he recognizes the pain of what he feels and he names it. And he calls it out for what it is. And yet it doesn't change anything. It's like God has completely abandoned him. And so he even goes to this place where he questions, is God even there anymore? Does God even care? And of course, later on in the book of Job, he has this really wonderful railing against God. And then God comes back and says, okay, we've done this enough, dude. When's the last time that you separated the water from the darkness? When did you put stars in the heaven? When did you raise up mountains? And then Job's like, oh, remember who God has been. So if the key theological question is always, what's God up to? In those moments when you know that God has wronged you and drawn his net around you, what's God up to? How is God going to work through this circumstance? Now, part of the question that we have to deal with is why God would let something like this happen, why God would let things happen. We're Methodists. We don't say everything happens for a reason, right? We definitely don't say that to a 16-year-old kid whose mom just died. The reason we don't say that is because we believe that God is present in the pain, but that God doesn't choose to test us by making bad stuff happen to us. Because that would make God, that would make God kind of petty. I mean, like my really bad third-grade teacher. My really bad third grade teacher who used to just love to find ways to kind of trick us. And she always seemed to take some kind of glee in watching us struggle, not in the good ways, not struggle in the ways where you have to do your homework and do your research and do hard work, but struggle in those other ways, like where you wondered what she was really guessing or what she was really working for and always made you guess. Sometimes we have this understanding that God is like that, that God throws things our way, that God sits up there and thinks, you know what, I think I'm going to strike down Teddy Henley and then see how Jonathan deals with it. I mean, what kind of a God would do that? I mean, an immortal, invisible, only wise God? A firm foundation God? Or one that is much more created in our image? A God that is as petty as we are. A God whose anger kindles against us because we didn't do what what our parents wanted. So it's a question about how we understand God. Who do we understand God to be? And when things bad happen to us, there's this question. It's always in the water, certainly in America. It's a theological thing in the water that everything is predestined. That it's sort of pre—it's just predetermined what's going to happen to us in our lives. Uh, the Presbyterian Church, of course, comes out of that tradition. Y'all know what a Presbyterian says after falling down the stairs? 
Well, thank God we got that over with. All right. Sorry. That's not in the Bible. <clears throat> I'm not busting on Presbyterians. I'm saying that it's a, it's a temptation that we all face, which is to say that if something bad happens to us, then God must have done it. But I think there's another way to look at it, which I think is much more distinctively Methodist and much more distinctively John Wesley, which is that when something bad happens to us, God draws closer to us. That in what we would call the dark night of the soul, God draws closer to us. Amen. And when I start thinking about it, the person when my mom died, the person that I was the most angry with was my dad. And there were a lot of good reasons for that. He earned the right to have me angry at him. But yet my dad, over the years of his life, after my mom died, my dad always thought his relationship with my brother was better and deeper than his relationship with me. And I asked him one time, I said, why do you feel that way? He said, well, Steve and I never fight. And he said, you and I fight all the time. And I said, mm-hmm. And I said, why do you think that is? And my dad finally came to this place. He said, but you never, when you get mad, you don't ever walk out. You always stay. I said, I learned that from my mom. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. You're amening way too passionately there, Bill. <laughs> um, and the more I thought about it, I mean, it was, it was for me, I had to learn because I had people who knew better and who knew how to teach me that part of the way I would maintain a relationship with my dad would be to go ahead and let the anger go, express it, because I was hurt. It made for a deeper relationship because I wasn't lying about what I felt. I wasn't lying about the hurt. And a lot of times, I mean, one time it ended up with me running away for a week. One time it ended up with me running away for two weeks. And one time it ended up with me running away overnight. It was good that I had friends who would take me in, right? I needed to deal with that anger myself. And I didn't want to be passive aggressive about it and just sit on it. Because what happens with anger, thumos, is that it has this way of building and building and building and building. until it, And it becomes a barrier if you don't ever deal with it. You've seen this in your relationships. You've seen the way that works. There's a line from uh, a great song uh, for any of you who happen to be fans of rock music, and there may be, I don't know, I can't see y'all up there, so I don't know if any of you would even remotely appreciate grunge music. Um, but there's a great line that says, safe outside my gilded cage, which is already just kind of gets my brain hopping. Um, with an ounce of pain, I wield a ton of rage. You start thinking about that, just a little bit of our pain, and it brings back all of that rage. One little pinprick of hurt, and it has a way of bringing back all of that rage that we've built up. And you know what? God can take it. Isn't that the, the most amazing thing, that God can take it? Like, God's not going to put us in time out because we took the time to rail against God. If there's any message from the Psalms or from Job, like Job never gets punished. Job, God never slaps Job down for railing against him. I mean, there's this wonderful thing that God is willing to allow us to rail. The prophet Jeremiah, this is what he says. 
you deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out proclaiming violence and destruction. You see, what he's saying, remember, as a prophet, he was supposed to speak God's word, and God only gave him bad news to proclaim. And you can imagine how that went over. <laughs> and Jeremiah's like, you told me to do this. I did it, and now everybody's mad at me. You deceived me. Why would you do that? Why would you betray me like that? Why would you set me up for this? Why would you give me this gift? Or why would you give me this particular hang-up? Or why would you make it so that I see the world this way and nobody else does? Why would you make it so that I can see the destruction that's coming and nobody else does? And now they all hate me. Look what you did to me. You made me this way. Whenever I speak, I cry out proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. But if I say I will not mention his word or speak anymore in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. And this is ultimately the thing. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. Now, the greatest basketball coach in the history of basketball. <clears throat> do I need to do this again? <laughs> Mike Krzyzewski says that the thing about anger is that it helps you to focus. Mike Krzyzewski says that the great thing about anger is that it helps you to zero in. And I wonder if we paid a little bit better attention and if we allowed ourselves to think about our rage if it might not help us to see something anew, to see the fire that is shut up in our bones, a fire that perhaps God in all of God's wisdom kindled there, to turn us loose on the world, not as angry people who wreak havoc all around us, but as driven people with a fire in our bones, Driven people who do indeed get agitated by injustice. Driven people who do indeed get driven and further motivated and better focused on what God really wants, on what we're really here to do. The wonderful thing about what Jeremiah is upset about is that Jeremiah is upset about the fact that God gave him a particular vision and people didn't hear it well. But then after he rails against God for setting him up, he comes back to himself. He remembers who raised the mountains out of the waters. He remembers that it was God who called him before he was even born. He remembers that it was God who came to him and gave him a message. And I wonder if we got better in tune and allowed ourselves to experience some of that rage if we might not knock off some of the rust of our faith and actually get to the place where the fire can burn most brightly. The thing about rage, and certainly Jesus experienced it and acted on it, and certainly Paul talks about it in the New Testament, says, let the thumos go. If there's an injustice, 
Speak passionately. Let the anger go if it's righteous. Just be careful that you don't let it become a self-indulgent rage. For all of us, I think the question that we have to ask is what was God doing in the first place? And how do we become more whole and better and more faithful by letting our rage go with God? Because the truth is you never, here's a Southern phrase, show your butt. Y'all have heard that phrase, right? You don't show your butt with somebody you don't trust. You don't let your anger come out. You don't speak your truest mind with somebody you don't trust. So why would you not let your rage completely out with God? Because the catch is, God's big enough and God can take it. Amen. Amen.